Welcome, everybody, to It's a Rap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features extraordinary people who do special things to enrich our lives and also features people who have overcome major challenges and adversities in their lives to come out on top. Today, I am privileged to have as my guest, Dr. Susan Partovi from Los Angeles, known as the Skid Row Doctor and First Responder for Injustice, who has been praised for her boundless compassion that she has demonstrated over the last 17 years of caring for thousands of the sickest of the sick in the homeless capital of America. Dr. Partovi graduated from the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. She is a family medicine specialist and has over 26 years of experience in the medical field. She has worked in homeless medicine for 18 years and makes her rounds in her outreach program on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, which has the highest concentration of homeless in the United States. She is currently the medical director at Homeless Health Care Los Angeles. Dr. Partovi is known in the community for her tireless work and passion for street-based medicine and advocacy for unhoused people that are gravely disabled. Dr. Partovi is the kind of doctor who wears a jean jacket, not a white coat, carries her medical gear in a backpack, and makes home visits to patients who reside outdoors. She has pioneered the practice of street medicine in Los Angeles, having created successful programs for the homeless in Venice and Skid Row that, be, that have become models for today's multi-agency mobile outreach teams that are run collaboratively by the city and LA County. She created the Homeless Street Medicine Program at Venice Family Clinic in 2007 that landed her in LA Weekly's list of most influential people in Los Angeles. Today, she doesn't do outreach like she used to. She directs a clinic once a week that is more of a wound care clinic for heroin addicts. The clinic provides sterilized hypodermic needles to people who inject drugs and prescribes medication and treatment for those who wish to stop. Her patients are the lepers of the American public health system, dually stigmatized for homelessness and addiction, for whom illness is inextricable from shame, and her patients adore her because she treats them without judgment. Just to let everybody know out there in our audience, Los Angeles is fourth in the world in homeless population. One out of 250 in LA County are homeless. One half are chronically homeless, meaning no home for more than a year. With all that being said, welcome Dr. Partovi to the podcast. Thank you. That was a great intro. Well, thank you. Well, Very... I, I, I could have gone gone on longer with all the accolades uh, <laughs> because there's a, a list of them. I, I will I will personally <coughs> say I have done uh, my research on the subject and on you and the term hero really uh, pertains to you and, and the oh. people who, who you work with. Thank you. Uh, take, uh, I take definitely represent a group of, of of other, you know. There's other clinicians out there. There like are. Me. Yeah. That's, so that's what I said. It. Yeah, you're all heroes. <laughs> take us back before graduating medical school. Uh, were you drawn to doing volunteer work, helping the underprivileged? I, I was. Um, I actually was involved with um, with a, a church group that introduced me to going to Tijuana as a teenager where we helped build houses. And that was kind of my first experience with uh, poverty. Um, 
you know, after growing up on the west side in Los Angeles, which is a pretty posh neighborhood, um, never venturing towards, you know, downtown LA or, you know, any of the other uh, uh, suburbs that are, you know, not the west side, basically. <laughs> and so that was kind of a wake up call for me as a, even as a teenager, um, to be really uh, surprised by how other people live. Um, uh, not just the poverty and the lack of, you know, housing, lack of clean water, lack of shoes, lack of clothing. Um, but then there's also the, the flip side of like how how generous they can be, how happy they can be, how funny they can be. So, you know, I, I, I soon started realizing that there was, I was able to relate to them, um, you know, more than I, I thought I'd, I'd be able to. And then I continued going to the same spot um, when I was in college at UCLA. Uh, I went with this group of people, um, uh, kind of a hodgepodge of uh, do-gooders from Orange County. Um, you know, most of them interested in uh, doing like a church service for that population there um, at the dump site, it was called. Um, and I um, shadowed a PA um, named Steve Knopf, who became my first mentor in medicine and I hung out with him in our little closet-like clinic um, and did that um, every Saturday uh, for five years. Wow. Yeah. Right. So a, quite, quite a commitment, as, you know, <coughs> at, at a young age like that. Yeah. And probably most girls were, you know, going out and going to partying. Party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> never got into that. <laughs> and and I, I bet, you know, doing that type of volunteer work really lifted your spirits and gave you that, that energy that you, you know, you could tell that they really were glad that you were there helping them. Well, it's a, it's a mixed bag, right? So there's, there's definitely what you're giving them and what you're getting from them, right? The, uh -huh. you know, a sense of purpose, a sense of, you know, I'm making a difference for you, but then you're also getting their, like I said, their generosity, their humanity, their humor. Um, and so you're, you build a relationship with them. And, sure, sure. and so you, I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, yes, we're, we're coming to quote unquote help them. Um, but for me at that age, I felt it was more important to to go every Saturday because I wanted them to know that I was committed to them. Even though I wasn't a physician, I was just pre-medicine at the time, but that the relationship, and that's kind of always been my philosophy um, is that's the most important part than the actual, you know, treating their diabetes, which is important, but you know, yeah. the second. So how did you decide to get involved uh, with practicing homeless medicine? Mm -hmm. So I, because of my experience in Mexico, that was basically a done deal as far as the type of medicine I wanted to practice in the future. 
Um, I wasn't sure like whether it would be as a family physician, ER physician, pediatrician, psychiatrist, but I, I knew I wanted to be working with underserved populations. Um, and so I actually did my residency at a county facility in Los, one of the county facilities in Los Angeles, which is Harbor UCLA. Um, and this was uh, before the expanded Medicaid. So anyone who did not have insurance basically went to, uh, went to the public hospitals and the public clinics. Um, and so that was the first step was uh, going to that residency and then being surrounded by same-minded people. And so I learned, I learned a lot from them and had like this kind of like a, a movement of, of wanting to improve things and, you know, got involved with the union <laughs> for the, re the residence union, as well as, um, you know, learning more about universal healthcare and its importance. And, you know, you learn to, you learn to do everything too, because when you're, when you're working at a, a public facility, when at the time it was, and I'm not exaggerating, a year and a half wait to see a rheumatologist or a cardiologist or, a, you know, any specialist. Yeah, sure. Um, and so you had to learn how to basically do that kind of stuff yourself um, or you're, you're calling, you know, your colleagues that you've met over the years saying, who's a cardiologist going, okay, what do I do here? You know? Um, so, yeah. so yeah, so we, we were all kind of thrown in that together. And so the people who, you know, and the mixed bag part is, is yes, you get a lot of fulfillment, but then there's a lot of heartache too. Um, so it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I can imagine. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, homelessness in the United States is actually down 14% in the last 10 years, but mm -hmm. it's up 75% in Los Angeles over the last six years. As of June 2020, the homeless count was over 66,000 people living in the streets and shelters and in vehicles within LA County, up 12.7% from the year before 2019. Right. What do you attribute that rise to? Well, at the same time, uh, the county was also working on uh, housing people, especially those who were medically um, unstable, who were who are also experiencing homelessness. Um, and so they so so I do want to point out that the county was actually able to house twenty thousand people in that in that time period. Um, and so still had a rise uh, in, in, the, in the count. Um, it's really hard. I mean, if you go back 10 years and look at the count, it's about the same. So there's definitely this kind of mercurial uh, rise and fall. Um, I was, once, once the 2008 um, decline in our economy hit, I was waiting for homelessness to be climbing um, ever since then. So there's always gonna be the economic issues. I think um, there's a couple, the, and another chronic issue is, is people who are dealing with severe mental illness and are not getting the treatment that they need. And um, that's, that's a huge issue. One third of the homeless population 
are severely mentally ill. And so yeah. um, that's not really being, I mean, it is being addressed to, I don't want to blame Department of Mental Health that they're not doing all that they can, but I will blame the state of California for not doing all that they can. Um, and uh, the other issue um, is is drug use. And we, we've developed this scourge of <laughs> scourge of uh, meth use and um you know I, I just spoke with sam quinones who wrote a book called dreamland which was about the opiate like how the opiate um uh uh, uh crisis you know came about and now he's writing a book on meth and he was saying that the meth that's being used these days um for, for some reason they have these uh, uh, properties that cause symptoms similar to schizophrenia, so psychosis. Right. And so I wasn't, like, I didn't know about that. I just knew that there was a lot of people using meth, almost, almost everyone I come into contact with. And I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's a large percent of people are using meth and it's really... Um, messing with their their mental stability. Um, now the question is, what came first? Were they homeless and now they're using meth, or were they using meth and that and now they're homeless? So it's really it's really hard to say. One thing I think that people are focusing on when looking at the numbers is actually it looks really bad right now, like. Like yeah, for better, look better yeah, for work, sure. right? Yeah. Like you, you, you know, Skid Row looks really bad. Downtown looks really bad. Even, you know, even Venice where I live, you know, there's encampments around here. It just, it's so visible. And that's the, that's one of the differences is that 10 years ago, they weren't allowed to create encampments. They weren't allowed to stay in a tent during the day. They right. had to break everything down and go along their way. And so they were nomadic. We did not see them and they did not form like these little mini communities because they were changing their spot every, every day or every night. Um, and so now people are, are kind of permanently uh, in a spot um, because it's, it's easier to keep your things that way and have other people kind of help you out watching your stuff. Sure. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, people are drawn to community. Uh, and so I think the, I think that it has looked really bad because of the, just the visual of, like we now see everyone, we see everyone's tents, whereas before people were hiding in the alley and sleeping, you know, overnight. It was more invisible back then. Yeah, so it's it, now more visible. So, so do you, I'm sorry, but do you think, uh, not the legalization, but didn't they take the meth uh, possession and make it a misdemeanor instead of a felony? Didn't they downgrade it? <clears throat> I believe so. Um, I don't know if that's meth or, or all, all drug use. Um, and if that has happened, that's a recent thing. Um, to be honest, I think uh, the criminalization of drug use is, is really horrific and is really um, probably has caused a lot of homelessness, if anything. I mean, if you go to prison, man, it's really hard to come back from that. It's, it's like hard to get a job. 
sure. it's hard to rent a place like you have sure. to say yes have you been in prison before yes you know um you know there's there's nowhere you can apply for without have being asked are you you know have you been to prison and so um and when you look at the california um prison system prior to covid it was probably 70 percent uh related to um drug use or drug possession now i'm not saying drug uh, or or drug um Selling, you know, selling of drugs, I think, is is different than possession and use. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. So so but for people who are using drugs, I mean, just putting them in prison, they're just going to use again when they come out. I mean, some actually do rehab- rehabilitate. You know, I, I actually yeah. know people who got clean because they went to jail. Um but that's uh, for, I would say, maybe 5% of the population. The other 95% are back on the streets using again, you know? So um, that's, 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 not the, that's not the way to address. I, I, I agree with you. And the reason I brought, I brought that up is because I was just wondering if it was, and I think it was brought down to a misdemeanor where you know, mm-hmm. probably nothing really happens other than a slap on the wrist, it could be driving people from other states to California where it's hmm. a harsher penalty. Well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just I mean, there's asking. a lot of reasons to come to Los Angeles if you're, if, if you're, you know, not housed and kind of trying to look for a better life. A lot of people come here just for the weather alone. Um, Some people come looking for business in the industry um, and for whatever reason, don't make it. So, uh, so I'm not, I haven't heard that being uh, um, something that, that, you know, lures people to California, but it definitely, it's a possibility. I just, I'm just not aware. (laughs) I don't know. When I read it, I went, oh, well, maybe they're coming from other places. So, uh, so one of the things, if you look at, say, um, I mean, Portugal, they completely decriminalized all drug use. Um, and if you look at their statistics, they're, um, they're, they're like some of, some of the social um, factors have really improved, including homelessness, including drug use, like drug use went down because they decriminalized it. Um, so, and, you know, the, the Netherlands are kind of following in suit with a more leniency towards drug use. So I think there's something to be said about, I agree about that. And, uh, you know, I, I think when people are addicted to a certain drug or multiple drugs they're and they're, they're experiencing homelessness, they, they're in survival mode nonstop. Absolutely. And so they don't have the wherewithal or the bandwidth, whatever you want to call it, to go, hmm, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, you know, get clean now. It's like, no, they're like, you know, it's right. like they're in survival mode. So if you take out the survival mode and like having to hide, you know, from the cops and using in the alley and not, you know, where you're at risk for overdosing and dying. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think uh, I think homelessness would start to improve. 
Dr. Partovi, could you tell our audience uh, what is the makeup of, of the Skid Row population? And I read uh, where some mental health facilities were just simply dropping off discharged patients there like it was a dumping ground. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I saw on, on a video. I mean, that, there, there was a, I mean, I think that was about like 14, 14, 13 years ago, um, you know, there was, there was a big, uh, there was a, a, a big issue made out of dumping people from the uh -huh. hospital. I don't know if there's been anything specific to mental health hospitals per se. Um, and the way they get around that is, so if you're, if you're mentally ill and you were hospitalized involuntarily because you were a danger to self or others or considered gravely disabled. Um, and they gave you some medications for like three days is the max where you can be held uh, involuntarily on a 5150. Um, and then if after three days of, you know, taking these medications and not using meth or other drugs that could be exacerbating your, your mental health issues. Um, what they do is basically say, you know, where are you gonna go? And they'll say, oh, I'll go to the shelter on the corner of blah, 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 blah. Well, where are you going to, um, you know, get food? Oh, well, this mission, they give out food, you know, twice a day, so I'm gonna go there. Where are you gonna get your clothes? Well, that mission, you know, so they basically verbally ensure that they're gonna be able to take care of themselves, not really taking into account their history um, and and their their the experience that other people have had with him with them. It's just more in that moment. Um, and then they'll give them bus tokens to go to the shelter. So that's kind of I mean there's it's a very you know I don't want to blame the psychiatrists or the social workers by any means because it's a very difficult system in that there's really nowhere to put. Um, people who are suffering from severe mental illness and who can't get better in three days. And so they can stay for two weeks. Um, um, but then if, if they need to be what's called conserved, um, like saying like there, there's evidence that this person really cannot take care of themselves, like they are a danger to themselves if they're released on their own cognizance. Um, there's nowhere, there's no facility to send them to um, because they're all full. And so what happens is, is the hospitals, so say, well, I'm not going to mention a hospital because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but no. say, say they're at a hospital um, that is, uh, doesn't, or is allowed to take, to have holds. So they're, they're, they're allowed to keep people against their will because not all hospitals are. Um, and some and a psychiatrist has designated this person that they need to be conserved. Um, it can take up to nine months before they find a place to actually place them. So what happens is uh, Medi-Cal nor Medicare, and you know most people most people who are mentally ill on the streets don't have private insurance, but right. even private insurance doesn't pay beyond the acute three days 
Um, and then you might be able to say like, they're still acute for a couple more days, but beyond the acute, acuteness of their, of their disease, um, Medi-Cal will not pay. And so that means that the hospital is boarding someone for nine months, which normally they get, let's say five, $500 a day, they're getting $0, <laughs> you know? So they have, no money. A, they're very, um, they're, they have a disincentive here to not, um, to not hospitalize people and say that they need to be conserved because then they, they take that risk of, of not getting paid for a border. It um, always comes down to money, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And if you, if you think about in the early 90s, um, uh, preg uh, pregnant women who were undocumented did not have uh, medical insurance for, for when they were pregnant and to cover their prenatal care or to cover their delivery or to cover their postnatal care. Um, and so you had tons of people delivering in the county facilities, right? But you also had tons of kids in the neonatal intensive care unit because these women weren't getting prenatal care. And so like their kids were dying or they were, um, you know, have, or being born sooner than they were supposed to, needing to be in the NICU. And as soon as um, California negotiated with the feds that Medicaid would now cover all pregnant women. So this was like probably 91 or 92. Um, so, and despite your documentation status, everyone was granted medical care while they were pregnant. So all of a sudden you have Cedar sinai like the nicest, you know, she-she hospital in LA, building um, birthing rooms because they are, they are trying to compete for those patients now because they will get paid well to take yeah. care of them as prenatal. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that we need. We need, um, we need uh, California um, to really uh, figure out how uh, Medi-Cal can participate and then the state as well needs to participate in funding these long-term facilities so that they're, they're nice facilities, they're appropriate for where they're at in their, their ability to take care of themselves and that they're, they're places where they can thrive and take their medications appropriately. You know? right. So that's, that's the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> that's uh, the Sk Skid Row in Los Angeles has been described as hell on earth. Could you describe to our audience uh, what it's just like physically and what kinds, what kinds of problems the homeless face each day just trying to survive? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty disgusting um, from on so many levels, like just a humanity level. Yeah. It's disgusting, but it's physically disgusting. There are, you know, areas of trash. It's, it's literally 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, thank goodness they've put in, you know, because of COVID they've put in um, bathrooms and, places where people can get water, like water fountains and places where people can wash their hands. Um, you know, before COVID, 
that didn't even exist. So wow. people just use, you know, go to the bathroom in the curb, you know, on the streets. Yeah. Um, there is a, a lot of drug use going on more so than the rest of the county, I would say. Um, and there's really severe mental illness. I mean, there's like, you can just walk there and within a minute, someone will just be like walking, you know, like half naked with like this, you know, horribly soiled, you know, whatever thing wrapped around them and just kind of out of it and walking in the middle of the street. Like it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's like the, you know, 1600s in, in England or something. Gotcha. medieval times yeah yeah so um i mean if if there's certain people like as you get to know certain people um you know again you you develop a relationship with them and realize that there's a lot of commonalities and you can relate to them and um and and you know again like uh, appreciate their their generosity their humor their humanity um but if you're just kind of walking around and it, it's, it's, it's really, really sad. How many, uh, how many blocks does it entail? So Skid Row, I believe, see, it goes from Central Avenue to probably Maple. So that's like, <laughs> like five blocks and then from third street no yeah then third street to seventh street so that's another four blocks so 20 okay block (laughs) so it's a it's a pretty decent sized area yeah yeah dr partobi what are some of the common medical conditions uh the homeless experience that you treat? Yeah. So in general, actually, they have a lot of the same things that everybody else in the population has. So they have high blood pressure, they have diabetes, they have heart disease. However, um, you know, they, if, if they're not having access to medical care, they've got the the nth degree of what happens when hypertension or diabetes or heart disease isn't controlled. Right. You know, so they they develop heart failure really quickly, or they you know lose a, a limb because their diabetes is out of control. Um, so you'll see. So you'll see a lot of the end result of those common things um, not being taken care of. Um, but unique to, I mean, there's definitely a lot of dental issues. Yeah, I can <laughs> imagine. going to be lower on your priority list. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to find it. You can't just walk into a dentist. Like you can walk into an ER and say, hey, I need my diabetes medicines. But you can't really walk into an ER and say, hey, can you pull my tooth? You know? Yeah. Like we can give you antibiotics and pain medicine, but we can't really do anything about the tooth. Um, and then there's a lot of skin issues. Um, so for people who have difficulty keeping up with their hygiene, you know, there's there's different types of infestations that they deal with or um, certain infections that they can deal with or 
um, you know, like fungal infections, bacterial infections, infestations like scabies or lice. Um, and uh, it just depends. Usually that's some, that's someone who's pretty severely mentally ill that's not able to keep up with their hygiene because it's not, doesn't bother them. Um, or uh, someone who's a pretty severe drug user to where um, they can't be bothered with their, their hygiene. Um, we also see a lot of feet issues, <laughs> if you can imagine. So, yeah. you know, it's something I like to do is, you know, that they have corns, you know, pare down the corn, clip their nails. Um, I remember um, one of my mentors, Jim O'Connell, Dr. Jim O'Connell, um, he's like the grandfather of street medicine out of Boston. Uh, he's not that old, though. <laughs> he's like one of the first people who actually started it. And he started, I think when he was like an intern, um, he was in charge of like the feet soaking clinic. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, at first he was like, kind of like, you know, why do I have to do this? And then he realized how important it was, you know, sure. especially when it's so cold, you know, they actually deal with trench foot and, and uh, frostbite and stuff. Uh, we, we know Skid Row is a dangerous place. Uh, what precautions uh, do, you, do you and your staff take when you're out there uh, doing your outreach? Well, I don't, I don't go at nighttime. Um, we usually say don't go out by yourself. Um, um, you know, I usually don't feel afraid. Um, that could be because I'm used to it and people kind of know me yeah um but if someone's sounding violent um you you go the other way you yeah. know you don't engage um um if there's a fight breaking out you don't engage right <laughs> you know? so don't need to be um, part of that no no and, and it's actually not very common I mean unfortunately uh you know we did um, there was a street outreach worker that was uh, killed uh, a few months ago, a couple months ago, mm -hmm. um, allegedly by one of her clients. Um, and that was like, uh, I believe in Echo Park. Um, but I mean, that's the first time I've heard of that in LA, you know? So obviously it happens, but um, when you're talking about violence, um, and I'm going to stick to the people who are severely mentally ill, um, their, their level of violence is on a much lesser level than, um, you know, the general population. And so if, if a violent act happens, it's more likely going to be from someone who's not mentally ill. Now the drug use, um, you know, it's hard. Again, meth is pretty much the only one, well, PCP probably, and spice, those are the ones that really alter your personality and make you do things that you might normally do. Maybe alcohol too. Um, I guess I just like listed the gambit of meds, but heroin, no, it, makes you, <laughs> it doesn't make you violent at all. It makes you very mellow <laughs> and benzos and opiates in general, but you know, I'm not, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but there's, um, yeah, y'all have their, you know, we didn't, when I first started working, minuses. when I was first started working at homeless healthcare, 
nobody was using math. Like none of the, you know, the, at the Center for Harm Reduction where I work um, once a week where we do a lot of wound care because of injection drug users, but it was all heroin users. And it wasn't until like the last seven, eight years that we started seeing meth injection users. And now it's almost every, almost everyone who injects heroin also uses meth. Wow. Yeah. What are some anecdotal? <laughs> what are some of the biggest uh, myths out there about the homeless? Can you think of that? Any? They're violent. Um, that they don't care. Um, that they want to be homeless. Um, that they're all drug users. Um, that they're loners and don't want to you know, interact with society. That's, that's all, like, if you can treat someone, you know, normal, for lack yeah. of a better word, like yeah. a normal person. Human, yeah. Yeah, they, they show up like a human. If you treat them like a dog, they're going to show up like a dog. But if sure. you treat them like a human, with respect, that's how they show up. Let me ask you, uh, what, what has been your experience in observing how the homeless are treated in the in the hospitals and the emergency rooms, and, and what are some of the biggest mistakes people make about the homeless? So, it's it's a mixed bag. Uh, you know, I I also uh, do urgent care shifts for the county, um, so I don't see it as much as say the ERs do, but um, it's it's really difficult for them, I would say, you know, a lot of them come for either minor um, issues like med refills or major issues like they're having a heart attack. Those aren't the ones that are difficult. The ones that are difficult are usually the severely mentally ill or the severe drug users that have altered their personality to where they're not really aware of their surroundings. And so, you know, we just had, we had someone (laughs) We just had someone uh, over the week, uh, Monday, I worked Monday at urgent care and we had a woman who came in saying that she was suicidal and her leg hurt. And then, and then when we were trying to deal with like, how are we going to deal with her suicidality? She's like, oh no, I'm not suicidal, but my leg hurts. I want that addressed. <laughs> so then they had, you know, they had her lying on a, a gurney. Um, and so by the time I got to see her, I'm like, you know, hey, miss, whatever. Um, it's Dr. Partovi, you know, she's like, leave me alone, you know. <laughs> I'm like, well, you said that your leg hurt. What, what's going on? Tell me about your leg. Leave me alone. You know, and she basically, it's cold outside and she wanted to, Yeah. we, we, we just let her sleep until we close. <laughs> let her warm up. So there was nothing really, you know, so I think that's yeah. a common scenario where um, a lot of ERs have to deal with severely mentally ill and, you know, and trying, trying to figure out, like, is there something really acute going on? Um, or is this someone who just trying to come in from the cold? Um, so I think it's really difficult um, for the, on the staff, because you, you feel bad, like the whole time we're like, all right, well, she's not talking to me. So, you know, 
like maybe a half an hour before we close, we got to call security so that they can, you know, and sure enough, she wouldn't leave. So they had to call security. I mean, I feel really bad because, you know, it's been really yeah. cold for us anyway. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just wish we had a place so we can go, okay, why don't you stay here? You know? Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, I think the other thing that's really difficult to tease out um when someone comes to the emergency room, like very psychotic. So is this, a, is this their baseline? Like, do they have an organic psychiatric disorder? Um, is this from an acute meth use gone wrong, you know? Or is this from chronic meth use? Now we're seeing that people using meth are actually developing chronic symptoms of psychosis, not, not just when they use. Um, or is this something like sepsis where um, it's causing what we call delirium, where it, it alters their personality and can look a lot like psychosis, um, and especially if they're homeless and look a little disheveled, um, you know, that might be hard to tease out. Uh, so, so, so those are, are some of the things as far as things that I would, um, blame <laughs> that I would criticize, um, the hospitals for is there's, there's still, um, a, there's still a lot of, um, uh, 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 what's it called? Um, derogative, uh, feelings towards drug users, um, mm -hmm. especially when it's obvious that they're a pretty severe drug user. Um, like that's one of the reasons why we started uh, having medical available at the Center for Harm Reduction, previously known as the Needle Exchange, is because they were treated so badly in the emergency rooms that they wouldn't go to the emergency rooms and would rather have like their arm fall off and like yeah. deal with that. Yeah. And 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 then there was also at the time really long waits for non-emergent you know issues, so it's hard for drug users to wait that long. So um, you know, so there's still there's still a lot of stigma um, yeah. attached and. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think uh, the county, um, mostly from the work of like one or two or three people, is they started really taking opiate use seriously. Because my experience is like, I, I would have a, a patient come to me, you know, with the symptoms of heart failure and say, okay, let's take you to the hospital. And she's like, I already been to that hospital, but I had to leave because they won't treat my need for opiates, you know? And, you know, this woman, she had been to three different hospitals, two weeks later, she was dead. Wow. So, yeah, and so I've seen, um, I had a patient who was hospitalized. He was, he is very anemic, bleeding from somewhere. And uh, they wouldn't give him uh, a, a, a opiate replacement medication because he wasn't in a methadone program. It's like, well, you know, like the goal of hospitalizing someone is to keep them there, <laughs> treat them yeah, yeah. and just, you know, and because they can't handle the withdrawals of their opiate addiction, it needs to be handled so that they don't die. So right. I think that's, um, I think that's one of the things that we're slowly, and it's probably different in different counties and 
um, you know, again, the county system is starting to kind of have a different, um, a, a different uh, culture around that. But that's I, good. That's but good. They, I doubt the private hospitals are. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> you know? So you know. And, and